Today's episode of Insufficient Facts is brought to you by All In My Head, an audio drama about Nova, a young woman suffering from sleep paralysis. As she tries to get to the bottom of her condition, she discovers there may be more to the monsters in her dreams than she thinks. Stick around at the end of the episode for a sneak peek of the show. Hi, everyone. So glad to have you here with us today. Uh, You are listening to Insufficient Facts, your podcast where every week we bring to you some cool science that we, as graduate students in Los Angeles, are excited about. So if this is your first time with us, welcome, welcome. We're happy to have you. If you are a repeat customer, repeat listener, then uh, we're happy to have you as well. Just as a reminder as to who you're with today, I am Christiane. Raquel. And Kyle. Okay, so what is our topic of today, guys? Well, this one has been absolutely blowing up recently in the headlines. Um, The headline that we're going to talk about has been one that's just had a ton of back and forth between the general public and the scientific community. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we're going to be talking about today in our, our segment, in our format, is going to be gene editing. And this takes many forms, but um, so we're going to talk a little bit about CRISPR, which you've probably heard about. Um, Maybe you don't know what it is, but we'll give you kind of a a nice slowdown, an easy to understand metaphor to help you understand what CRISPR is doing. And it's got a cool name. It's got a cool name, but (laughs) why? why Clustered, regularly, interspaced, short palindromic repeats. (laughs) That was off the top of her head. Yeah, she She knows it. She's prepared. So Mm -hmm. that's what CRISPR stands for as an acronym. But what is it and what does it do and why are we talking about it all the time? So we'll talk a little little bit about that, a little bit about the history of um, gene editing, a little bit of science fiction, science fact. So as usual, we'll start out with our recent headlines. The one we're going to talk about, of course, um, if you've been kind of paying attention to the news recently, is this... um, the, these CRISPR babies, right, that um, basically their germ lines, these embryos were edited um, by a scientist in China. His name is He. Um, he. Yang Kui? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I, I'm really sorry. I'm yeah. just going to apologize right now. That's his, we apologize to our uh, Chinese yes. listeners. I'm sorry for our pronunciation. But yeah. he, so essentially, he's a, um, a researcher in China who um, not only used CRISPR to edit human embryos, which is legal, but he then implanted those embryos into a mother and she has carried those, is carrying those children, those twins that have been edited using CRISPR to term. So, mm-hmm. um, super, uh, every, Big it's news. really got everyone up in arms. Yeah. So we'll kind of tell you why everyone's quite upset about this. And then we're going to go into our science fiction, science facts segment where I'm going to talk to you about the movie Gattaca which came out in 1997. Um, Good great, stuff. Great movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully you've seen it or heard of it. Um, and what we're going to kind of explain why it's such a great movie, not only just because it's entertaining and, and has good drama, but also the science behind it is quite well done. So, yeah, we watched it in my biology class in high school. Yeah, so did we. That's how I learned biology. <laughs> yeah, I, I would... didn't watch this movie until maybe like three years ago, and I was like, where was this my whole life? Yeah. This is amazing. It's definitely... It's, it's kind of a cult classic. It didn't yeah. do well in the box office. And then um, after talking about Gattaca, we're going to talk about um, some bizarre science. So Raquel's going to lead us through kind of eugenics. the history. Yeah, we're going to talk yeah. a little bit about eugenics, which is a term you should probably know about. And you should know a little bit about the fact that it's not just um, most people, when they think of the term, think about World War II and, and Hitler and Nazi Germany and mm-hmm. what was happening there. but It was kind of going on in a lot of places. It was, and, and the United States has has a history with eugenics. And yeah. unfortunately, this is one of those instances of science being Used manipulated. for nefarious reasons. Yeah, yeah. So people kind of manipulating or taking uh, the facts of the science. and, and yeah, It's good to add context to the headlines. Questionable yeah. facts at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll talk to you a little bit about that. Not facts at all. We'll go into our classic segment with um, Kyle, who's going to tell us about kind of... How do we know that DNA is the uh, blueprint for life? Right, mm. right. How, do we even, how did we even get to the point where we can manipulate DNA to the point of, of editing, having these gene-edited babies. Like, how did we figure this all out in the first place? So, this is a dark episode already. <laughs> if our listeners are, like, trying to, like, find some other news to look at because everything's falling apart, like, I wonder what's going on in the science section. It's even worse. <laughs> we have our own drama right now. But, but uh, I mean, that's why we have the science fiction science fact segment. Hopefully yeah. that'll be a, not... Uh, We'll try and bring some levity to the situation, but it's an important topic, so it that's is. why we're covering it today. It's really important to Very kind of relevant. let you know what's going on, and then as usual, we'll end with our 
Lifting the Veil segment where we're going to tell you about our lives. Um, so if you are tune in for that every week, you know, you'll just have to bear with us for the, the actual gene editing part. But hopefully you'll learn a little bit and get a little engaged along the way with yeah. our topic. Yeah. So what's going on in China? Oof. What is going on over there? Oh, man. Just, I mean, the, the, a lot in general, but specifically in the scientific community, <laughs> uh, what's happening? Well, so as I kind of briefly introed earlier, there's, um, so obviously the, we've gotten to the point in gene editing technology and science where we now have the ability to fairly fine grain chop out bits of DNA and alter kind of these DNA segments with a decent amount of, of discrimination. So mm-hmm. um, or the the specificity of the areas that we're able to target right, is, has right. increased yeah. over the past five, ten years. And um, a lot of this movement has been the result of this technology that we have called CRISPR. Right. This- and so like genes are these like, huge stretches of DNA inside the chromosome. Mm-hmm. And Humans have like uh, billions and billions of base pairs mm-hmm. of like little bits. Yeah. And until recently, we've only been able to like edit like chapters of our genome. And so you could only like remove or edit these big parts. But the problem is, is sometimes even a single mutation on a single gene, like a single molecule can completely change the, uh, the, the person. And so if you want to be able to change something with like meaningful on a meaningful level, then you have to be able to change like the individual letters inside of a chapter of a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's CRISPR. Yeah. So CRISPR was first discovered in 1987, but it was only recently that it started to be used to actual, actually be called CRISPR and used for specific gene editing. Mm-hmm. And this is not only being done in humans, but in all sorts of living organisms. Um, it's really useful for kind of plopping in certain genes into genomes for bacterial studies, if you're studying yeast, if you're studying like all sorts of organisms. Yeah, CRISPR is used a lot in research, just like for normal mm-hmm. everyday stuff. Right, it's an incredible tool, incredibly powerful tool. It's, yes. If you look at like 90%, I would say 90%, don't quote me on that, <clears throat> but a lot of research today on cancer research and different genetic diseases relies on this CRISPR technology that we right, have. Right, because we, uh, we can edit genomes on the most fundamental level now. Yeah. Right. And it's, so it's a wonderful resource. So how are we going to use it? When used, you know, consciously in, in a responsible manner. So yeah. this isn't as obviously as big as a concern if you're editing yeast genomes, mm-hmm. but um, there it has been this now source of editing or a way to edit human um, germlines, which is basically the human genome in embryos. Um, so, Can in, you make my kids tall? <laughs> oh my gosh. <sighs> tall, actually height is a, is a really what we call a, a polygenic trait. So there's a lot of genes that actually are associated with height. So it's not just one thing. And mm-hmm. it also is like your diet and your nutrition through your lifetime. So it's actually would be really hard to be like... Tall gene, go <laughs> activate. Turn on that switch. <laughs> yeah, um, but there are other things that are specifically like one gene that you could change. Um, so, so in the United States, um, you know, this is not really editing germ lines. is is not It's illegal. It's illegal. So um, you're not allowed to edit. Um, you're not legally allowed to edit human germ lines. Um, so in China, you're allowed to edit the germ lines of embryos. However, there's no, as far as I'm aware, there is no scientific organization or community that is pro-editing these embryos and then implanting them yeah. into um, surrogate mothers or mothers to then carry those babies to term. Like, right. I think a lot of this research is done in non-viable embryos. Yeah. So mm-hmm. of, an embryo that would not be like able it couldn't, to... It couldn't be a person even if it tried. Right. Yeah. It's It wouldn't ever, no matter what, it would never become a right. human fetus. or a fetus. Yeah. Um, However, this scientist in China, um, he he has gone forth and done exactly what the scientific, the general scientific community has been very against, and mm-hmm. he has edited these embryos so that they can be resistant. With his goal, he says, was so that he could change this gene so that they would be less susceptible to um, contracting HIV because their father is HIV positive. So he edited these embryos and then he implanted them via IVF um, uh, into the mother of the children, essentially, of these embryos, the, the mother, the donor. 
Yeah. And so she has been, is carrying these twins to term. And so these would be the first real gene-edited babies that have been edited via CRISPR. Supposedly. Supposedly. This is, this is not 100% confirmed yet, yeah, but he, he has... We have a strong reason to believe this. Yeah. And so generally, you know... Um, when this was announced, the scientific community at large is like, "Hold your horses! What? What did you? What did you do? Like, yeah. are you? This is absolutely not okay." Because while it's one thing to edit the genome of uh, something like yeast, it's a whole other thing to edit the genome of a human being. And this technology is not perfect. It's not reliable. A hundred percent of the time, we're still kind of in the discovery stages of exactly the limits of CRISPR as as a methodology. And so, you know, he says that he he edited or removed this gene to make them less susceptible to contracting HIV. But in the first place, there is a lot of other methods that you can use to um, make sure that embryos do not inherit HIV from a father that is HIV positive. So this was not necessary at all for yeah. these these um, embryos to become HIV um not resistant, but make, ensure that they would not inherit HIV yeah. from their father. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. really dubious. Um, China, uh, the like science Community association, way. and China is mm-hmm. also very outspoken against this. They think this is kind of like will tarnish China's reputation mm-hmm. um, in terms of uh, the science that's being conducted there. So overall, just really, um, it's it's there's so much back and forth. There's been yeah. articles in the New York Times and the Atlantic, and I think in the LA Times, like almost all of the um, big journals or um, newspapers here in the States have picked it up. And and generally, there's not a single person that's speaking in support of what he's done. Pretty much across the board, everyone's like, what he did was not okay. And Genetically also, engineered babies, bad. Yeah. Like, how did this happen? How was he able to do this? Like, where was the oversight? Mm-hmm. Who, who could have stopped him? Yeah. Um, like, how did it get to this point where he was able to do this? So, And on the technical note for the HIV prevention, I think it's the case that men don't necessarily give their children HIV right. directly. Like, this, this, the semen can be cleaned or you can inject sperm directly into the egg that's been cleaned. Right. So his justification for what he's done isn't even... That it's alone is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's this whole morale, the, the, you know, just before we move on, but there's also this whole issue of, of um, in China, there's a lot of a high demand for IVF, um, in vitro fertilization, which is basically where you fertilize the embryo outside of the body artificially, and then you implant that fertilized embryo into the uterus of the surrogate or the mother um, or whoever's going to carry that child to term. So there's a high demand for this in China, and it's very expensive. It's on the order of, like, tens of thousands of dollars. So part of this research that he was doing, he was basically offering this to couples who had uh, the, who the male was HIV positive. They, he was offering this IVF, right, for them to have this service done um, for free because they were participating in his, his research and his clinical trial. So from a moral perspective, he was offering them a child, which, I, you know, if you're at the point of IVF, you've— exhausted a lot of other options yeah. and and it's a and lot it's, expensive. it's it's a lot you have to have hormone injections and it's really um strenuous mm-hmm. and it's a lot of you know it's really stressful and usually people who are at that stage are really would love to have a child and they would like that to make it happen even at the burden of you know injections and mm-hmm. great costs so the, the incentive is so strong. it's such a high incentive so of course there's going to be mm-hmm. couples who who you know when they hear about this they're going to sign up so uh, across the board, the, the, there's yeah. a, a number of ways in which this is really, really not okay. The, the mm-hmm. technology itself is not evil. Yeah. I want to get make that clear. CRISPR is a wonderful technology, and it's it's led us to so many great discoveries, and it's allowing us to do so much. But we have to have oversight in how yeah. it's used. My personal opinion is I think that is the direction we're going in. There will be gene-edited babies, but... Um, it has to be done with very careful oversight. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that it, it, I, I do think it will become probably more common, um, but it just has to be done with the utmost Carefully. caution and extremely mm-hmm. considerate and not this like. And scientifically sound. Yeah. So we search to back whatever. And we still have made. a way to go as a scientific community before we would say we're comfortable doing that. Yeah. So we're not at that point yet. Um, we will probably get there, but definitely not today. It shouldn't have happened. Yeah. Um, so there's a, a article in the NY Times about this or several articles. If you just look it up, um, 
there's a, a plethora to read about about this topic. <laughs> that's one of my favorite words. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Um, so, you know, that's kind of recently what's been happening. Um, in to transition, we'll kind of let's talk about the science fiction versus science fact aspect of Gattaca. Gene Etica. Editing, yeah. So we have this movie called Gattaca, which came out in 1997. I think it's really cute that the title is actually the DNA sequence. Yeah. G-A-T-T-A-C-A. Right. So it's spelled G-A-T-T-A-C-A. And the reason they named it Gattaca is because um, in DNA you have these uh, base um, not they're, base pairs, but they're basically the base units mm-hmm. of of how DNA is structured. Like the basis of a code, your DNA code. Yeah, so there's four different types of, of bases that uh, occur in DNA. So you have G, which is guanine, A, which is adenine, T, which is thymine, and C, which is um, cytosine. Mm-hmm. Right, and these letters are arranged in a very specific way. Right, and depending on how they're arranged, then you get different proteins generated, and so they do different things, and that's basically the the building blocks of how everything knows what to do yeah. and the order in which to do it. So. And how that was determined is what Kyle will talk about in his segment. Yes. Yeah, it's going to be fun. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's a really smart name um, because it is a movie about kind of gene editing, and they use this this name that's derived from the bases of DNA. And essentially, if you haven't um, seen the movie, the premise of it is that this is uh, in some kind of alternate reality or timeline or maybe the distant future where um, gene editing and engineering babies is actually much kind of like we just talked about, but um, it's actually very commonplace and the technology is um, very refined so that uh, basically it's it's very commonplace for parents to just... um, go through this process where their best genes are selected and combined and then put together to form their their children. So their babies, most of the children that are born are genetically engineered to have the best genetic traits from both parents and to um, kind of eliminate any of the potentially uh, negative, in effect, mutations that one parent might have or alleles that one parent might have. So basically this is kind of a, a type of... of or one way that we can think of eugenics, where basically the population is being selected for very specifically for certain traits. So like increased intelligence and maybe height or like athletic ability, you know, muscle tone, something like that. So all of this is being selected for in these children, um, except for our main character. So the main character, his name is Vincent Freeman, and his parents had kind of lived outside of um, I think they didn't live in like an urban center and they were kind of not, uh, didn't really believe in the necessity of this engineering, baby engineering. So they decided to just naturally conceive and give birth to their child, which was Vincent. And so they didn't have the their best genetic material combined to create Vincent. They just kind of let it happen naturally. And so when he's born, um, he's kind of diagnosed as being at high risk for certain um, genetic disorders that might negatively impact his health. And he's given like an expected lifespan of 30 years. And in this um, in society, in this movie, essentially, if you are um, like Vincent conceived naturally um, and not engineered, you're kind of treated as a second class citizen Mm -hmm. and you're called an invalid. So this is a social society where you're you're classified not based on your income or your economic status. But your genetics. Right. If you were engineered, like, to be the best, you know, whatever combination of genetics or genes from your parents or not. So um, if you are one of these engineered babies, you're considered a valid, essentially, is the other term. And if you're like Vincent and uh, conceived naturally without this engineering, you're considered an invalid and you can't hold a lot of jobs and you're considered a second class citizen. So. The story basically follows Vincent. His dream is to become an astronaut and basically work um, for the space agency and kind of go on one of these expeditions to um, into space. But he's not allowed to apply for that job because of his status as an invalid um, and because of the disorders that he's been. Um, he might. Does he have a job in the movie? He does. He, uh, if I remember correctly, he's like a janitor. He kind of is like cleaning staff. Uh, okay. Um, so he does have a job, but him, him and the Roombas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I know. It's funny that they don't have Roombas. The robots haven't taken over uh, yet, but you know, we'll talk about that next week. Yeah. Um, but so he has his his job, but he's not allowed to apply for a lot of these jobs because of he has this predisposition for certain genetic disorders, or you know, they just basically treat him as a second class citizen. Mm. And um, he basically his younger brother was born via this like 
engineering, genetic engineering method. So throughout the movie, there's this kind of conflict between them where they're always competing in this like swimming race off the coast of where they grew up their childhood home. And usually his younger brother beats him. But, you know, the turning point is where he finally beats his his younger brother in this swimming race. So he's like kind of like I have my own you know thing to contribute. Like I think I'm a valid uh, potential candidate for this job. I don't think I should be judged for the fact that my genetic makeup wasn't selected for. And so he um, uses, um, he goes to apply for the job to join the space agency. And in order to apply for that job, he has to pose as a valid person, someone who did have go through this process. And so to do that, they DNA test the uh, people every day, Mm -hmm. the applicants. And so to get around this, he basically makes a strike to deal with someone who is a valid, right? Someone who does, has gone through the process of genetic engineering as a, as an embryo. And he is, gets DNA samples, like skin samples or hair samples from that person to then submit to the DNA tests Mm -hmm. so that it Mm -hmm. seems like he is um, a valid essentially so that he can kind of sneak under the radar so that's kind of the conflict in the movie. Is he, he is, wanted to be an astronaut, right? That was yeah, yeah, and you have to be a valid to apply mm, for that job. Yeah. So, um, essentially, that's the conflict of the movie. Is he's kind of fighting against this societal system where he's judged um, for his his genetic makeup, essentially, and he's uh, pursuing this job as an astronaut, but he has to be dupl- duplicitous about it. He has mm. to kind of continually get these samples from someone who is a valid to kind of pass these daily tests. Yeah, I think in terms of the movies we've gone over so far, this is probably the most close to a potential future. It raises really interesting questions. Yeah. yeah, it does. Well, NASA NASA in 2011, like, they put out this list of the most scientifically feasible movies and the least scientifically feasible movies, and this movie, Gattaca, ranked number one as the most scientifically plausible movie. Like, it had scientific... That's scary. M- mer- yeah, it is yeah. scary, right? So the science behind it is absolutely... It's sound. It's sound, and it's, you know, probably in the next... 10, 15 years is going to be pretty easy to do. Well, you're already sequencing genomes and sending in our 23andMe. Right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. not used in the way that it was used in this movie. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a, this movie is fantastic for this topic. So even though it was, you know, 97, um, which, you know, is a, a couple decades ago now, um, it's still super <laughs> Kyle just shook his head. That's why I'm laughing because Speechless. I can't, I can't, I can't believe shook. I can't believe that was over two decades ago. But yeah, so this movie is um, kind of a cult classic and definitely still worth a watch and really has um, some great science behind it. Like the science is really sound. So it gets an A plus from us for the science fact portion of it. They just kind of take this and think about it in a future context. In a way, yeah, but in a way that stimulates the people who are watching to think about the right. moral and implications, like, ethical implications. Or the societal implications. Yeah. You know, if yeah. this is commonplace, you know, after 50 years of this, then you have a whole generation maybe that's predominantly been at some point genetically engineered, which is yeah. crazy to think about. And then years later, CRISPR comes on the scene. Right. And we've got right hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people at this point, sequencing their own genomes by yeah. voluntarily. We hope you're enjoying today's episode of Insufficient Facts. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about or a follow-up question to any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, insufficientfacts.com, and click on Ask the Panelists. You can submit your question, and we may discuss it on a future episode of the show. Now, please enjoy the rest of the episode. Yeah. So I mentioned the word um, eugenics, uh, and, and this is kind of... Uh, it's it's not a great, it's not a hap, feel-good topic. Um, it's yeah. one that, you know, is kind of science taken for nefarious means. So mm. um, I'm going to let kind of Raquel give us a, a background, a bit of a history lesson and also a science lesson about kind of, you know, like I said earlier, we when we think of eugenics, probably the example that comes to mind for most people is um, Nazi Germany during World War II when yeah. um, you, you know, they were basically this. looking for or only allowing people who had very specific physical features and traits and backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so Raquel's going to tell us about Cold Spring Harbor and kind of the history. There is a history of this, of, of eugenics uh, in the United States, and yes. I think it's important that we know about it and kind of are aware mm-hmm. about these things that have happened in our history and, and yeah. how they tie into science. Yeah. When I was in history, when I was in middle school, our professor would always say, well, 
teacher would always say that if you don't know what happened, history is doomed to repeat itself. And that's yes. just a common saying yeah. in general. So this is not going to be the most feel-goody segment, as Christian said, but it's important to know yes. so that you're aware of it. Because we as a society, we decide what is moral and what is ethical. So we, we've got to be conscious of what's going on. Mm -hmm. So to the history, we're going to talk more about eugenics. So eugenics is defined as the science of improving a human population by controlled breeding to increase desirable heritable characteristics like what was going on in Gattaca with also the gene editing as well. And... Um, it's basically selective breeding, but instead of talking about Gregor Mendel's pea plant experiments like we have in previous episodes, we're talking about humans here. Mm. So, so as Christian said, the most common thing that might pop into your mind is the Nazi party and their use of eugenics as justification for uh, selective breeding for particular traits as well as extermination of those that had undesirable traits. And and yeah, and t closely tied to this idea is that if you have some traits, then you are better. Yeah, uh, which is the big issue. This is where it becomes really gross mm -hmm. and 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 nefarious and bad. Is where like if you have certain physical features or traits, then that makes you, you better, better than, than someone who mm -hmm. does not necessarily. Or uh, yeah, so and we know that that's not the case. Yeah. <laughs> so in the United States. And Canada and some countries in Europe, they also have a history of eugenics research. And some, many, some people might not know about this. I didn't know about it, as, at least in the depth of what I had to learn to be able to prepare this segment mm -hmm. for you guys. So Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories is a private nonprofit institution in Long Island, New York. Mm -hmm. And this place, they've produced a lot of really important seminal, groundbreaking research right. in genetics and cancer research and neuroscience. And they've had about eight, if I'm remembering correctly, eight Nobel laureates for oh, wow. medicine and um, or physiology. And so they produce strong science. So it, when... You're thinking of frame that in the context of how they were able to yeah these are the lead, best of the best yeah mm -hmm. lead the country down this direction so they have um, Kyle will talk more about the discovery of DNA and how we know that that's the building block but, but a lot of this eugenic stuff is happening at the same time as people are uncovering yeah. Yeah. what yeah. DNA is mm -hmm. yeah so in 1910 Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories opened its eugenics record office. And this was where the leading scientists in the world in genetics and genomics conducted research that helped shape some of the more nefarious political agendas, such mm -hmm. as anti-immigration laws mm -hmm. and forced sterilization based on the findings that they had that are now, thankfully, discredited That's so based crazy. on sound research. Right. Yeah. So, so this is happening in our backyard. This is happening in the United States. Yeah. Sometimes people will... You know, sometimes science is done where you get a particular result that hasn't that ha the study hasn't been replicated. It hasn't been done at, on a broader scale, or there's something it wrong was with led it. by your own yeah the, uh, right. idea of what the outcome should be. Right. There there's, are cases where scientists get to justify their weird prejudices because it's based on science. I'm using air quotes yeah. right now. Yeah. <laughs> People like somehow mm -hmm. come up with like the Aryans. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That should be okay. And that's a that's a dangerous path to go down because, you know, it, it it's just we we really need to be like fact checking and fact checking mm -hmm. and not let our own biases inform how we treat people or like use our own biases to treat like affect how we're doing our science. Yeah. So uh, that's why diversity in science is so important. It really, really and is. Data sharing and sharing of your methods. Right. So that there's a large community that can either confirm or critique, disprove the yeah. findings that you produce. Right. So That's how good science is done. So this is a, an example of, of science that was done that was taken to extremes that it should have not been taken and used to justify things that it had no support to justify. Like it didn't have the grounds or the, the solidity or, or kind of actual factual background to justify any of this. But yeah. So by the 1920s, 
this eugenics record office was the forefront of eugenics research in America. And I'd just like to note, around the same time, the Nazi Party was founded. Uh, so they were using their prejudice and their biases to lead the data that they were collecting, the analyses that were done. And we'll talk more about confirmation bias in our artificial intelligence episode, but that's basically where you allow your data, your data confirms whatever ideological ideologies you came in to your, um, that formed your data collection and formed how you collected your data. And right. You, so if you're biased in how you collect your data, then you're going to get results that are, do not accurately represent the truth, mm -hmm, the, right. the whole fact, the whole picture. I, so, don't want, yeah. I want to tread lightly here, but I know that white nationalists often point to statistics and violence, and they point to poor neighborhoods composed of people of color are the most violent. But what they're not noticing is that that violence is really unique to poor communities. And it's just that people of color often live in poor communities because of the history of our country. Yeah. And so they point to that to say that, like, those people are less than. But that's not the case. Right. Yeah. This, this is, that's another example. Like, correlation does not mean causation. And you have to look at all the factors. Yeah. And there's a lot going you can't on. pick and choose. Historically, kinds. like, there's just a lot. If you're not looking at the whole picture and you're not doing your due diligence to assess something from every angle, then you have really no right to make these claims. Yeah. So mm -hmm. the methodology that they used was flawed. And as we talked about before on our show, the methods and how you analyze your data is everything. Mm -hmm. So in the 1920s, they started to influence actual U.S. government policy. Ooh. And in 1924, yes. they passed the Immigration Act, which basically created quotas of um, the amount of people that could come from Arabic countries, mm -hmm. East Asian and European countries, and those that were Jewish to try to control the immigrant population because they didn't want that, that to could be brought into again. the genetic pool. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm glad we've come so far. I I really Ugh. really hope it doesn't happen. Again. We're 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 on a scary. Yeah, we're at a scary point in time, but I have hope in humanity. I'm work I'm working with hope in mind. So anyway. On the state level, they were doing sterilizations of people that were deemed unfit to reproduce. And I just, when I was looking this up, guys, I had a moment where I was just about to throw my phone out, throw my computer out and be like, there's no way that this happened. This is 100 years ago. It's not that long ago. It was within the lifetime of your great-grandparents. Mm -hmm. So in 2014... NYU had an exhibit that recreated the eugenics record office so people could walk through this ghostly and honestly shameful part of U.S. Mm -hmm. history because mm -hmm. it's important that we remember. Right. If the, the biggest, well, not the biggest crime, but a significant crime would be to allow this to fade away from our collective memory. Yeah. That would do a disservice to so many people and so much work that's been done since then to kind mm -hmm. of disprove this. So as a... As, uh, collective we should be remembering these things and mentioning them and and mentioning them and teaching them to you know our children because That's cautionary tales yeah yeah so cold spring harbor also keeps all of the original case files and photos and those are available through the eugenics archives website and you can learn about that that's available to the general public mm -hmm. um i use that in researching this so mm -hmm. it's so. a slippery slope when both your own biases and prejudice informs your science, and then when that science begins to inform policy and specific political agendas. But right, because uh, yeah, unfortunately, there's this idea that like science, you you know that once it's if there's a study that's put this kind of results out there, then that's that's true, and people will start running away with that and being like, well, this science, this study, these scientists found that this is true, and it's like, well. The due diligence has not been done to mm -hmm. actually back that up, um, so we can't shouldn't take that for face value until we get more information. And um, just like in government science, we have checks and balances. Yes, as we should, mm -hmm. right? That's important to a, a well functioning system. But I think you know part of the important thing is like you know this was this was a some a rhetoric that was happening globally at the time, but also mm -hmm. at the same time as Kyle mentioned, we were just learning about how the building blocks of of DNA. Mm -hmm. So like. How did we even arrive to understand what was being, how we could alter 
genetics in such a way. So I, I'm going to let Kyle kind of take us away for yeah, the classic segment to kind of let us know how we even got there in the first place. Now, I often derive inspiration for the classic sections by just asking the stupidest question I can think of. Just like, <laughs> well, how do we know the DNA is is what it is? There are no stupid questions. The stupider <laughs> the question, sometimes the more enlightening. And so in this week's classic section, I'm going to give a blistering review of genetics. And then we're going to get to this big moment in science when we realize that DNA is, in fact, the molecule that designates life. Mm-hmm. Um, And humans have been domesticating things and sort of altering them in some ways for at least 12,000 years. And the first domesticated animal was a dog. Yes. And so dogs were bred to be friendlier and happier. Christian knows. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We could have a whole episode on dogs. Like, I know too much about this. We have a dog expert in the house. And later, people domesticated cows and chickens, honeybees, silkworms. And so intuitively, people understood that by mating two things with traits that you liked, you would have offspring with even better or worse, traits. Um, so this is how you end up with pugs from wolves. Um, <laughs> Very unique cribiform plates. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> That's exactly what my research is. Yeah. yeah and it wasn't until the um, 18th century that really enlightened minds started to consider the mechanism by which traits are inherited. And, um, and so the, along comes this quiet little monk in Austria tending to his garden, and he sets up the next 250 years of genetic engineering. Mm-hmm. He's amazing. He's that so ahead of his time. Earlier. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and genetics started with a pea in Gregor Mendel's garden. And so there's this monk who has this beautiful garden, and he notices that his peas sometimes have different colored flowers or different sized stalks or different widths of leaves. And by carefully breeding different types of peas in his garden, he makes really careful statistics, and he develops this model of inheritance. And so if you take two different, like, red flowers, you can still get a white flower out of it. And so we have this idea of like recessive genes. Mm -hmm. At the time, um, the idea of inheritance was a little bit different. This Lamarckian model, we called it, based after the scientists who developed, which said that whatever your parents did in their life, you inherited. So if your parents were digging up like yams and potatoes all day and they were very thin and tan, then you would also be very thin and tan Mm -hmm. because... That's what your parents did. Right. But if your parents were fat, lazy aristocrats, you would also be fat and lazy. <laughs> Which is not how it works. So yeah. we, we found out. So, But that, it is. It makes sense. Epigenetics is a following off of a similar pattern, right? Right. Yeah. In and, terms and, of how the experiences that you have in your waking life can be encoded. There's renewed interest well, in Lamarckian yeah. inheritance, yeah. just yeah. like you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the but the real undercurrent um, of this idea of, like, you have in you, like, actual innate information about who you are and who you will become mm-hmm. was really driven home by this guy, Sir Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, who sadly gets forgotten about a lot. But these two guys came up with this idea of evolution. Kind of independently, they came arose at this idea, but around the same time. And, and Darwin published first, so he gets the credit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so scientists narrowed down this the spot in the actual organism that has this, like, code for life that slowly evolves and drifts and has little chapters and stories in it that determine who you will become and who you are. Like the color of your eyes and the color of your skin and, like, the size of your big toe. All <laughs> these things are in this genetic code somewhere. And so scientists by 1900 had kind of, like, narrowed down the spot on the organism that has the information into the gonads, so the testes or the ovaries. And um, so at 1900, start of the century, the history of biology and physics actually are remarkably similar. And this is exciting. So both fields were trying to find the indivisible unit of their study. So physicists were looking for atoms. Biologists were looking for something that has all the code for life. Yeah, Yeah, building block. And so there's this guy, Thomas Hunt Morgan, who's um, studying Drosophila, these fruit flies. And he's the one who reveals the language of life, genes. And in 1910, he shows that genes reside on chromosomes, which are these specific blobs of matter inside of cells. Mm-hmm. And so we're narrowing it down a little bit. Um, but it still wasn't clear what was actually like encoding life. Mm -hmm. And so chromosomes are composed of proteins 
and this other kind of weird molecule that they called um, deoxyribonucleic acid. DNA. And DNA. Mm -hmm. And at the time, people were thinking like, so this DNA is the scaffold that holds proteins. And the proteins are the thing that hold the secret of life. Um, because it, And this idea was really attractive because um, proteins are composed of amino acids. And there's 22 amino acids. There's 26 letters in the English alphabet. Mm -hmm. So maybe this <laughs> amino acid thing is kind of like the alphabet. And yeah. it spells words, air quotes again. And so the similarity drew people in. And also people knew that proteins were what kind of did all the functions of life. Yeah, they knew mm -hmm. proteins were important for yeah. getting stuff done, but they didn't know where proteins came from. Yeah, how mm -hmm. they were being created, like, in your body. And so people were on a hunt to figure out what protein was being held inside of this DNA matrix, inside the chromosome. And But it was really a quantum physicist who stepped in and started thinking about things slightly differently in a deep way. Erwin Schrodinger was one of the fathers of quantum mechanics. And while he was escaping World War II to hang out in Dublin at Trinity College, he gave a series of lectures and it turned into a book called What is Life? And he notes that the essence of life is information and transferring copies of that information. He proposes that genetic information is stored in an aperiodic crystal and that information mm. is encoded in the covalent bonds between <laughs> molecules inside that crystal. Wow, that's mm. a lot of <laughs> a lot of chemistry. <laughs> it is. Stick with me here. Okay. And so he it seems obvious, but he also points out that the information has to be digital. So it's made of finite units because the molecules can only bind in so many ways. And so this made a lot of interest in finding this aperiodic crystal, which is probably inside of the protein inside the chromosome. Mm -hmm. So And this is he he was theorizing this. Mm -hmm. So, giving lectures on theory, though. Yeah, yeah. It's fun. And so a lot of people thought that DNA was the scaffold that holds the protein. So people wanted to find the structure of this protein. Like, yeah. how does it do it? Mm -hmm. um, and so enter three young scientists in England who were at the right place and in the right frame of mind to think about things a little differently. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the way that people study the structures of biomolecules at the time was with x-rays. So you, you could make a little crystal of the proteins or whatever you wanted to study pass a beam of x-rays through the crystal, and the wave x-rays would form a pattern on like a photographic plate. They'd almost cast like a shadow. Right. And based off of the shape of the shadow, you could infer the shape of whatever molecule we're studying. Right. Because these clever. things were too small to look at under a microscope. There's yeah. no way you could just like magnify at your least view at the time. At the time. Mm -hmm. You couldn't look at it in such a way that you could just like magnify and look through a microscope to see the structure of it. So you had to come up with this creative all other, other way. So you throw these x-rays at it and you're like, okay, well, whatever shadow is cast, then let's kind of take move, work backwards from that and figure out the structure. So the shadow puppet method was the path forward to figure out the structure yes. of whatever was inside the chromosome holding the information for DNA. Yeah. So without much further ado, enter <laughs> a lanky American named James Watson, a clever <laughs> scientist named Rosalind Franklin, and a physicist named Francis Crick. Rosalind Franklin was especially good at this crystallography thing. And she got the first crystal and x-ray photo of this DNA thing. Watson and Crick were at Cambridge studying how to read the x-ray images. And Rosalind was at King's College in London taking the pictures. In 1953, the, an image of the DNA crystal was given to Watson and Crick by their colleague who was in touch with Rosalind and Franklin. Watson and Crick deciphered the image to reveal that it was a double helix made of sugars, phosphates, and four different molecules, which Christian mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And this was the only way that they realized that information in life could be stored, transmitted, copied, duplicated ad nauseum. I will say, importantly, Rosalind Franklin was not given credit for, at the not. time, for her work. So yeah. without her crystallography and that kind of picture, um, the... Watson and Crick would not have been really able to figure out the structure of of DNA. Yeah. And so they they did important work too, and their minds were critical in kind of putting the pieces together. Mm -hmm. But her crystallography and her image um, was was a really crucial piece to yeah. the puzzle. Um, and when they kind of came forward with this idea of it being a double stranded helix structure of DNA, they didn't mention her at all, and she. It took a while for her to even get any credit for this. So, unfortunately. And as we've said before, the tools you have are vital. And yes. the tool that she had was key to their discovery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
But so that's that's how we know. That's how we know that DNA uh, is this double helical structure. So it has two rows that kind of twist and turn around each other in a helix. Yeah, it's difficult to to transmit over the podcast. But when when they saw the double helical structure of DNA and saw that it was composed of this like digital digital four different bases ATCG, mm-hmm. they realized that this is literally the only way that it could have been done. Yeah, because chemically and like the way that these bonds work um, between the amino acids and the the kind of base the the spinal the spine of the these helical structures there's only there's only kind of one structure in which they'd be happy mm-hmm. to bond with mm-hmm. each other and that's in this double helix structure and it's worth making a quick note here about why that's the only possible structure and so um so the, for life to proliferate it has to make copies of itself yes. right and so if you want to make uh, another thing, a version of you. Or just another cell. You have to have an extra copy of the blueprints that tell the cells what to become. Yeah. And so the double helical structure can unwind. It gets unzipped. That's what you are usually taught is there's this little mm-hmm. thing that kind of chugs along. DNA helicase. Yeah, and it chugs along and it kind of separates them, unzips them. So you have instead of two combined like strands, you have now each a single strand that has been separated. Mm-hmm. And each one of these strands is complementary to the other. Mm-hmm. And each one of these strands, single, can now be copied to form another double helix right. each. Mm-hmm. So now you have two, two. double helices, yeah. both mm-hmm. an exact copy of the other. Right. So you can kind of, you're not limited by, you, however however much DNA you have when you're born, that's not a limiting factor because you can create more of it. So as many, you know, as you're generating new cells and replacing cells, you can duplicate your DNA, which is super important. So, you know, this is kind of the, 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 how we know that we have these building structures of DNA and how we got to the point where we are today where we can edit these really fine-tuned on a, on a small scale and chop out bits of these bases and then throw in other bases to kind of edit the the genes and the proteins that are being made. So, yeah. so kind of you got the whole picture of yeah. from start to finish of yeah. where we are now, where we started. Um, I'm going to kind of end us today by like shifting into our... our Shifting into our Lifting the Veil nice. segment. Got it. Nailed it this week. Um, <laughs> and we're going to tell you a little bit about our, our lives personally and kind of what's been going on um, in the, our past week or so. Yeah. So um, let's see. I have – we're kind of getting towards the, the end of the quarter here. And so that means for me that I'm grading a lot and I have to proctor exams and – it's just work on my own research and yeah. the little squiggles of time that I can squeeze in. Um, but so it's it's kind of a, a stressful time of year. But the weather is nice and, and cold now, which I actually prefer. Um, I like yeah. it when it's a little rainy and overcast. I I like to be able to wear jackets and turtlenecks and not be sweating profusely. <laughs> so um, this is I'm happy with the weather. Stressed about work, but that's that's life. That this too shall pass. The yeah. Break is almost here. So. Yeah. What about you, Raquel? So for me, man, I love being at UCLA because it's only here you can just pop into someone's office and be like, hey, I want to run this experiment. Can you help me with it? And they'll <laughs> be like, sure. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> so I had one of those moments, and I've been working on putting together how we can actually do it because we've we've got a study going on in the lab, and I'm really excited about it because one of the things with science is, is you have to get funding to do your experiments. Yes. And we've been trying to get this PTSD and sleep grant funded for a long time now. It's a struggle. And it's it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. It's not easy to get the funding for these projects. Yeah. So what I'm proposing to do will help us get more out of the same amount of animals we were planning on using anyway with minimal cost. And, Which makes it more appealing. It yeah. adds more to the funding mm-hmm. proposal so yeah, they're like oh it, they're it doing makes all the this theory stuff. more sound yeah yeah cool that's exciting well, the hypothesis more sound yeah yeah nice nice what about you kyle i've been reading a lot of poetry mm-hmm. that's good it's a nice time of year when it's kind of overcast get yeah. some tea kind of curl up just have yeah. some introspective and i think this feeds in really positively with my research because uh for me poetry is to life what mathematics is to science it's mm. like the most essential distillation of what it is to be a human. And I think that seeing something so rich in thought really enhances my thought. And I think that seeing something so oblique to my own research is sort of like a nice, startling, fresh wake up. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, I minored in literature um, in college, so I would always have my quarters be where I took like two science courses and then a lit mm-hmm. course because yeah. I liked that balance. Mm-hmm. I liked being able to not drive myself crazy by thinking about science all the time and also get to read and have an excuse to read. And yeah. I took a like a French film noir class once for my minor. So we every Wednesday we'd watch a French film noir movie. Yeah. And I was like, woohoo, this is great. I love this. And then I'd also get to go study mammals and birds. And I was yeah. like, woohoo, I also love this. And so I, I think... You know, it's really easy to get into our, our, you know, I have all this work to do and I just need to do, be doing my science. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, but it, it's really fulfilling to also find time to read things that you enjoy or watch, you know, classic movies and kind of think about more of the arts kind of yeah. side of things. I think that's also really great for our brains. And yeah. I think it really helps our, our flow of thought, even if it might not directly relate to what we're doing. I think it's yeah. helpful to us and makes us happier yeah. in the long run. My leisure reading is important to me. It's precious. It should be. Yeah, it precious. is. It's really... Yeah. So send me some more poems, listeners. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You have a poem recommendation. Send it our way. So thanks for joining us today. Hopefully you learned something informative. Maybe your um, curiosity was peaked, so you're going to go investigate some more about mm-hmm. one of these topics that we introduced to you. We're always happy to have you here with us. Um, this was Insufficient Facts. I am Christian. I'm Raquel. And I'm Kyle. And hopefully you'll join us next week. Thank you. Hi, I'm Christiane, and thank you for joining us today on Insufficient Facts. If you love science like we do, then we invite you to join our exclusive Fact Finders Club. As a Fact Finder, you will get access to suggested readings, our notes on the show topics, blogs that take you behind the scenes of our lives as scientists, and access to a Finders exclusive chat space that includes Q&As with the team and the ability to submit questions and topics for future episodes. By joining, not only do you support the show and the panelists, but you'll gain access to resources and bonus extras that we don't release anywhere else. And you'll receive a merch pack that includes our official enamel pin, show art sticker, and thank you card. To join, visit our website, insufficientfacts.com. And now, please enjoy the trailer for our sponsor, All In My Head. To listen to their show, visit their website, allinmyheadpod.com. So, Nova, what would you like to talk about today? I just want to get some sleep, Dr. Andrews. Quiet. Quiet. So, sleeping. When we talked on the phone, you told me you suffer from sleep paralysis quite frequently. (laughs) You aren't real. You aren't real. Keep quiet. Four years. I have to say, that's... Unprecedented. You, you don't exist. When I wake up, you'll be gone. Quiet, little girl. Can't let you scream. You are not real. You're just a bad dream. Quiet! Now, how are you going to fix me? To keep up with our show, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All In My Head Pod. For additional content, join us on our website at www.allinmyheadpod.com. <laughs>